So good morning, all of you. It's so good to be here. I'm going to try not to act like Garth Brooks and scream and yell, although I feel like Garth Brooks inside. That's a good documentary. Y'all should watch that on Netflix. I did last night. Actually, I did. You really? I mean, who was alive in the 90s? I mean, come on, 850,000 people at Central Park? That's something. I mean, anyway. It's good to see you guys. It feels like it's been a super long time, which is exactly what you want vacation to feel like. Super long, right? You want it to extend and, and feel super restful. And it's been fun to be out of pocket for a while. It's been good to gather thoughts and think some different thoughts and read some unrelated things and, and just kind of rest and refocus. And it's good to be back. Well, last week I was in the greatest city in the new world, in my opinion, Mexico City. If you haven't been, you must go. And I was there with my second oldest daughter, who is an enormous F1 fan, and we were there to watch Formula One in the Mexican Grand Prix. And to be super clear, she's straight Tifosi, that's capital T. Ask Jay Franks if you don't know what, Jay Friels if you don't know what that is. She chases the red team, and her favorite driver is Charles Leclerc. He's not my driver. My driver is Sergio Perez. If you don't know who Checo Perez is, he is Mexico's favorite son, and he took a third podium position for the first time in Formula One history. And about 30 million people were in party mode all day. It was the most unbelievable thing to experience. 30 million plus two, Taylor and I. It was an exceptional experience. Those of you guys who watch it at, at Circuit of the Americas here across town, uh, they do it well in Mexico City. 400,000 aficionados show up, and everything is thought through to the nth degree. I've been to the Olympics, and I've never seen an organized event like this. Not even a service at Austin New Church on a Sunday morning is quite disorganized. So, so anyway, it was an enormous privilege to travel with my child. Uh, she and I share so many things, and it was just really, really fun. So today, we sit exactly two weeks away from the beginning of Advent, and if that's a new concept to you, um, you can Google that. Uh, it's the beginning of the retail, it's actually the beginning of the, the church year, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll ease us back into that in time. But right now, we're still sorting through the memories of Mark as he recorded them, the gospel writer Mark, not Mark the pianist or Mark the poet. Um, and we're preparing our hearts to get ready to make room again for the birth of God in Christ. And I designed that sentence exactly that way, because that's the size of that idea. So, but today, the lectionary directs our attention to a little story right at the transition between Jesus' time, his activities in the city of David in Jerusalem, and something that scholars have come to call the Olivet Discourses. Meaning, there's a point when Jesus leaves the city of Jerusalem for his own safety, for his own well-being, and he takes up a position on an opposite hill called the Mount of Olives, hence the name the Olivet Discourses, and he puts some finishing touches on his teaching ministry. He clarifies some misunderstandings, and so let's read that. It comes to us from the book of Mark, chapter 13. Remember, Mark wrote first. Mark pulled entirely from memory. Matthew, Luke, and John were spinoffs of a couple of other texts plus what Mark wrote. But this is how Mark remembers it. This might be familiar to you. Verse 1, chapter 13. It reads this way. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and large buildings. And I don't know why I think of Little Red Riding Hood right there. What, my, what large teeth you have. Anybody else? Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, his closest circle, asked him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And then Jesus began to, to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. I love how he doesn't answer the question. 
Beware that no one will... that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of birth pangs. And before you get super alarmed at all that heavy-duty stuff in verse 8, that's pretty much every day on earth. Nations fighting against nations, earthquakes, if you've never lived along the Pacific Rim, or any of the capitals of the New World, then you may not know about earthquakes. But famines are a constant thing. Anyhow, Jesus goes totally apocalyptic at the simple question about the temple. Now, just to review very, very briefly, Jesus rode into the city on the back of a donkey earlier in this very same week that we're watching be wrapped up right now. We call this his triumphal entry. But whatever triumphal qualities this little bit of public theater had, It could have only been to the eyes of poets and philosophers because there's nothing terribly triumphal about riding in the back of a city on a donkey. I said a few weeks ago on a thing we shot for the the fifth Sunday that Jesus was no prophet and he was also no priest. But even those who figured that out early on still hoped that he might yet be a king. But given the way he rode into the holy city that day on an untrained beast of burden, fawned by crowds of children and waving tree branches, any attentive observer would have been able to see this was no king. At best, this was some kind of strange street parody. Anyway, he managed to infuriate nearly everyone that week. Sounds like an average week in the day in the life of Trey. He managed to anger everyone in town by the end of the week. Some of you are just getting that. Man, you're slow today. (laughs) You know, you remember the story. He flips some tables right after he stops off to see if a fig tree might help him with his groaning belly. We don't actually know everything that Jesus did that fateful week. Mark wrote down what he thought we needed to know or all that he could remember at any rate. The cursing of a poor fig tree, some public questioning about Jesus' authority, some significant rumbles over the subject of the resurrection of the dead. And then we have Jesus and his little band of hopers heading back out of town. And this is the conversation we have preserved in our text today. Leaving town disappointed, maybe even a bit shocked, almost certainly looking over their shoulders to see if they might be followed, the disciples point out one thing they probably thought that everyone could still agree on, the beauty and the permanence of the temple. So Jesus, the wisdom teacher that he is, finding ways to connect all things to whatever discourse he feels like he wants to have at the moment, juggles in the subject of the temple itself. No matter what the disciples threw him, he could juggle that too. He just answers the questions he wants to answer. And as per usual, the disciples think that they're talking about one thing, but in subsequent conversations, also preserved in Mark, becomes clear that Jesus is talking about something else entirely which becomes clear to the reader in a subsequent conversation held in private. Now, Mark wasn't listed among the few people privy to that private clarification, so I I wonder how he knew the details, but we won't bother ourselves with that this morning. There was a reason they were in the city that week, and there was also a very good reason why they left when they did. Now, here's what I imagine was going on behind the scenes. That's the work of biblical study. I think the circle of friends that followed Jesus around obviously had high hopes for his future, High hopes for his future and high hopes for their role in his future. Why else would they quit their day jobs and set everything aside to follow him around? Well, they did it to matter, to have an impact, obviously. 
So a lot was riding on Jesus' performance in front of the crowds that week. And I'm guessing it hadn't gone as, as his friends had hoped because they ended up leaving somewhat abruptly while the crowd wasn't looking, which wasn't the way to build a massive following. It was actually the opposite. What do we do when we're disappointed? What do we do when the car that we've been chasing for 50 laps suddenly pulls away, Mark, and there's nothing left in the pedal to chase it? What do we do? We pit. We punt. We change the subject, which often looks like reaching for a safe conversation about a subject that we think everyone can agree on. Do you do that? I know I do. That's called Thanksgiving. You see, the truth about the traveling school of discipleship that Jesus assembled and led was that the primary curriculum seemed to be an unbroken thread of major disappointments. So these folks, after a week's worth of letdowns as they're leaving town, bring up something they think, anything they think that they could all still agree on. I think they make a nice effort here. This is, however, a very Jerusalem-specific conversation. If this was Austinites talking, the subject would probably be something different, you know, like how good our music is or how good our food is or how much better Austin is than Houston or Dallas, you know, something we can all agree on. That's a safe conversation in Austin. Some of you are like, "Mm mm-mm. But in Jerusalem, the one unrisky topic about which everyone was probably in agreement, at least if they were Jewish, was how beautiful and permanent the temple was. It stood solidly at the center of everything. Surely Jesus could not disagree on this. It probably sounded something like this. Hey, Jesus, so we know you aren't going to stop causing troubles. That's clear. You're not going to stop picking fights and rejecting the crowd's wonderful invitation to become their king. At least we can all uh, all agree on how amazing our history is. I mean, look at the massive temple. Even if our present is weird and our future is uncertain, at least we can all agree that our past was glorious. But they didn't quite get the reaction they were crossing their fingers for that day. So, of course, it demanded a clarifying conversation with Jesus later in private. Now, the brave souls and the traveling entourage of this promising new voice on the wisdom scene had yet another major disappointment to sort through. As I said, in the world of Jesus, discipleship consisted of one disappointment after another. So the transitional conversation that Jesus has with his followers leaving the city for the very last time as a free man was about the one untouchable thing at the center of it all, God's physical address on earth. Now, don't necessarily think of their temple like we do of our church, friends. It's not the same thing. This grand edifice was more than a place where folks would gather on weekends to drink crummy coffee in styrofoam cups. That's what we think of when we think of church. No, no, this was the precise location where God and humanity were supposed to interact, overlap, engage, be in relationship. If this building were to be torn down, there would be nothing left at the center of Jewish devotion. It wasn't easy being slaves of Rome. There was very little dignity and pride in paying monstrous tributes to fund the conquests of a maniacal emperor, but at least the Jews still had their temple. As long as that stood, hope remained, which is why this little conversation between Jesus and his friends matters so much. Now imagine with me, if you're able, the shock. Jesus said a lot of alarming things. He said them often, but this apocalyptic prediction 
pushed into whole new domains for his followers. He wasn't pruning branches of their religious and national cosmology here. He was pulling at the ancient root of the entire system itself. I think Jesus knew he would never survive this frontal assault on the temple. This would cost him his life. He was no fool, and yet he went there anyway. Now, maybe you grew up thinking that Jesus had to die because God was mad. Perhaps you were taught that God had to murder part of God's self so that God could relearn how to love the rest of God's self. Maybe that narrative still works for you. It no longer works for me. I think people pay with their lives when they question the center and the power and the identity of things. I think they pay for their lives, and I think our history tells that story. This is bigger than just a discourse about the physical temple in Jerusalem, you see. It's about physicality in general, about the nature of the cosmos and where God can be located. The center is moving, you guys, or maybe a better way to say this would be human awareness of where God can always be found is evolving and fast. Think of it. The shocking claim beneath this discourse is simply is simple, really. It's simple, yet it's very astonishing. Jesus is claiming universal locatability of the divine. Anywhere bodies are, God is. Do you see that? Think that through all the way to the end and ask yourself this. What lies at the center now? And who gets to regulate access to God now? Now, I will admit this is a big idea, one that takes time to germinate. All humans in all places from all cosmological systems would eventually discover the almost unbearable proximity of the divine spirit that animates it all to the material world. They would all find it in their own way. But that took most people's thousands of generations to embrace. Jesus is now pulling on simple people really quickly, and he's pulling hard. Now, to be clear, I'm leaning heavily on Paul's interpretation of this discourse that Mark preserves our passage only actually says that Jesus announced the ensuing destruction of the physical temple, which actually was destroyed by the time Mark wrote down this story. But the traditional read that the faithful have always cherished on this little passage was that Jesus was referring to his body that would be raised again in three days. Imagine this message. Don't hang on to this building as the center of meaning. Forget the temple, y'all. It's no longer essential. God's new address is your body. Essentially, Jesus says, this will fall and still you will be well. This will crumble like my broken physical body and still I will rise. All things do. It's how it actually works. Can you imagine the moment the disciples just tried to bring up something simple? Can you feel that shift, I wonder? His friends didn't get it, but they weren't idiots. They were people of their time, not unlike us. And Jesus is proposing a whole new way of seeing the world. This is how he does, friends. This is who he is. He questions the center. He always goes for the core. He calls our attention to the assumptions that we don't even think about. They're just there. They always have been. You know, it's interesting I'm not an expert in the intricacies of Jewish cosmology. I was raised a Christian with a Jewish text, but mostly interpreted to me by white Western men, like most of you. But I do know something that stands at the core assumptions behind the temple system. 
It goes a little bit like this. We humans are lost and broken and dirty and unreliable and evil to the core, so we need to cleanse and purify ourselves before approaching the presence of God because God is ashamed of us and our choices, our nature, the urges of our flesh, the functions of our body, our proclivities, and lo, the entire world we inhabit. So much so that God can't even look at us without being angry. Be honest. Isn't this the basic stone-upon-stone algorithm that drives everything most of us have ever known about faith and religion? I'm certain there's dozens of ways to interpret and apply this text today. I'm just choosing the one that's revealing more of me to myself this week. You see, I used to think that everything was punishment, that everything was personal, because I was irreparably damaged, and whatever wrong between me and God and the world must be 100% my fault. That's what I've always thought. In which case, the temple makes perfect sense. If the foundational assumption is original sin and that God is angry at our humanity, then you need a pretty place to put him, somewhere safe. You don't dare take home a God like this. He's way too dangerous. God, as they knew him, was not to be trifled with. You don't just walk up and start a conversation. But what are we to do, friends? The gospel now says that the new temple, that new place of encounter with God, the new location of the presence and vitality of the, of the divine in the world is our very own body. Oh, church, everything we ever knew is undone if this is true. At the center of my approach to life and faith and relationships and spirituality and happiness and love is this single idea. I wonder if it sounds familiar to you. I have to work to be wanted because I'm unclean. I have to earn God's love and attention, and I have to keep it by being good and getting better all the time, by believing and doing all the right things. Oh, does that sound vaguely familiar? Scary gods need stone temples. You mustn't get too close unless that way of seeing the world is actually what Jesus is toppling. You might say, remind me, preacher, what was the final lesson before leaving the city of David? Oh, just that God was always as close as our very own bodies. That's true for all people, by the way, and that it was never our job to alleviate God's anger. All things that fall will rise again, bodies as well as buildings. This is, after all, the central claim of Jesus' message. Knock down these walls and altars and see what rises in their place. A de-centered devotion, the awareness that God approves of people and meets them inside themselves, wherever they are, whoever they are. What a message. Temples, bodies, they're not that dissimilar after all. The body is the stage where eternity and time now dance. The human body with all her chaos and beauty is the canvas upon which heaven and earth paint with vivid colors both past, present, and future. If we still see Jesus as exclusive to our culture, as proprietary to our religious cosmology, as our friend, the hater of our enemies, then we lose now. He just moved the center. Our temple has fallen. Divine presence has always been universally accessible, universally available. Today's passage is just a moment frozen in time, but it's a big one. These simple folks like us were just trying to keep their place in his entourage, but suddenly it got significantly harder, didn't it? 
You see, there's no more sacrifices or burnt offerings, no more need for priests or religious professionals, no more obligation to do the work there in Jerusalem, no more obsession with cleanliness or ceremonial purity. In fact, there's no more purity at all. It's all been decided. You are loved. You are fully seen and affirmed and welcomed right here. There is now only God who can be found right here. And if all of that old language is not connective to you, if you feel culturally distant and think it's old, arcane language, let's try this. When we peel away the way we do worship and our missional thinking and our service to the poor, when we strip away our denominational identity, our leadership philosophy, and our commitment to justice, when all of it is burned to the ground and the core is revealed, if it is only about performance and anxiety, trying to earn what we think we don't have access to because we are human and weak and addicted and confused, then that, dear friends, is exactly what must die now. There is now only love. It's all been decided. There is only God who can be found right here in our bodies. This final thought as we go our ways today, it's a terrifying thing to come to the natural end of one's ability to conjure God's blessings and approval. It's a terrifying thing to realize that you and God have always actually shared the same address. What falls away with the temple stones? Our crutch. The complex system we used, we used to rely on to gain what we've actually always had, God's love, God's acceptance, God's affirmation. It's time to let go of all spiritual systems and religious technologies that feed our anxiety and sense of unworthiness. It's all been decided, friends. You might ask, well, then what holds the center now, preacher? Just that your body is the way home? That your body is where God can be engaged? That God already lives comfortably right there? If you can believe that, Oh, I pray that you can, dear friend. I pray that we will. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, remove from us now the fear that relies on distance from you. Help us to engage you as we are able, as we've always been able, right here in the physicality of our lives. And whatever help we might need to, to, to own this truth and to welcome this inside our, our lives at this point, we would just simply receive the reminder that we've been encouraged to do, which is to eat the broken bread and drink the poured out blood for us. We just take a moment now to settle our hearts around this truth.